Welcome to the MBUK podcast. In this series, we'll be looking back through some of the moments that helped shape the sport of mountain biking. From the pioneers that paved the way, bikes that broke the tech boundaries, and the events that pushed the very limits of the sport, to the racers who will be forever cemented in our memories for their antics on and off the track. We'll even do our best to predict how things will look in the future. If you enjoy what we're doing, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your mates. And if you have time, please give us a review. Welcome to another episode of the MBUK podcast with me, Tom Marvin, and my co-host, Rob Weaver. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Uh, there's, no, there's no hype in this one. We're going straight You in. sound terrified. <laughs> Hello. Oh, I mean, that is me every day. Absolutely terrified of life. Just trying to get through it. <laughs> Thankful for when the day ends. Joining us in this episode of the podcast is John Aldell. He is uh, the International Marketing Director uh, of uh, Marin Bikes and is also the man who knows the difference between Marin and Marin, because uh, obviously we all call it Marin Bikes, but it's not. We do. No, it is pronounced, technically it is pronounced Marin. Marin. Yeah. 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 There we go. But, you know, as long as long as people are talking about our brand, yeah. I'm happy. We'll have that conversation. We'll we'll go into the the difference between Marin and Marin, um, the spellings uh, and how it maybe should or shouldn't be. Uh, but that's uh, <laughs> that's one for another maybe podcast. That's one for other. <laughs> we try not episode to put people 13. off. Oh my God. <laughs> right. In this episode of the podcast, instead, uh, we're going to talk about the moments that might change mountain biking. So in this podcast series, we have talked a lot about the history of mountain biking, the, the products, the bikes, the people that have influenced to get mountain biking to where we are now. But we thought we'd look into the future, uh, get our crystal balls out and talk about the tech that you know, maybe could have an influence down the line. Now, this isn't like fact. You know, we know a few <laughs> bits and pieces that are coming. You know, we are exposed to some embargoed content, but uh, this is more as hypothesis. I mean, it's a continuing theme, isn't it? It's probably not even accurate either. Yeah. <laughs> Much like a lot of the guessing. rest of the podcast. <laughs> yeah. We've Just looked at Wikipedia. <laughs> We're trying so hard. We are trying. We are trying hard. But we'll start off with perhaps like the most obvious one. You know, we've had electronic gears now for... I'm going to say, what, four, five, five years? We probably first heard about it five years ago. I think they launched in 2019. So, yeah, that's four years ago. Oh, no, sorry. No, no, no. We've got to go back to... Oh, I'd go all the way back. Sorry, DI. let's go DI2. So yeah. when was that? 2015? 2014? Yeah. On, on a mountain bike. On a mountain bike. On, 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 on road, road bikes way before that. Sorry, right. yeah. Just sticking to mountain bikes. I'm pretty okay. sure I had a Scott Spark with it on in 2014. Yeah. Could have been 2015. I was tired because I would have had my first child by then. Uh, okay. Well, I didn't actually you didn't. have a baby, no. But um, let's not get too technical. Um, it would have been 2014, 2015. DI2 came around. Yeah. Since then, we've had wireless gears from SRAM. Yeah. And I guess sort of the, the question is, what's what's next with electronic gears? We've just we've just had the launch of SRAM's powertrain. Powertrain. I find it a real hard word to say, but powertrain. I mean, I'm not very good at talking anyway. So <laughs> the more, you know, the harder they make it, the better. The worse it's going to be for all our listeners, <laughs> yeah. all three of them. So, um, SRAM, you know, that's that's got auto shift. Obviously, as we all know, um, Shimano's DI2, when it's plugged into the e-bikes, also has self-shifting capabilities. And co-shift, yeah. And co-shift. Yeah. Um, so I guess the sort of the question is, where is that tech going to go next? And you know, in, in the preamble to this recording, Rob, you were sort of chatting about what you think it could go next. Well, where it could go next. Mm, yeah. So I kind of said, well, at the minute, as far as we're aware, you know, we don't know. I'm not smart enough to know the, the true capability of it. But 
I wondered whether um, we could move from it being, you know, uh, reactive to more proactive, proactive in terms of how it shifts. So right now, say you're bombing down a hill, you know, the, the gear system can't see that you're about to go up a really sh like short, sharp, steep rise. Mm. So until you hit that climb, it's not going to start changing gears. Whereas as a rider, if you can see it ahead, you might, you know, shift a couple of gears just to ready yourself, you know, because you know you're going to have to work a little bit harder climbing up there. But what's to say you couldn't sync your GPS with that auto shift function? And, you know, if you've ridden the trail before, if you've downloaded the GPX file, the auto shift function or the e-bike motor or whatever it is that kind of dictates it is aware mm. of what's happening the trail you're riding and it knows at this point in the trail you're about to hit a climb therefore it makes that shift for you or it looks back over data last time you rode it i was gonna say yeah maybe like machine learning there a little bit exactly ai ai, AI on bikes ai on bikes but for for that sort of thing do it i think we're probably the bottom of the food chain for that technology so do yeah. we maybe need to look at what the auto automotive industry is doing like mm -hmm. is that what's happening in cars like motorbikes that's a good one you know they've got a recluse clutch which is essentially you know you can it'll just change gears for you to a certain extent mm -hmm. or you know people are sorry not all but people are still choosing to use kind of a manual clutch and change gears so you know is there some romance in having full control of your gears and your bikes to i i don't really know where i'm going with this but I know. Well, I think I do. Um, I'm just I'm just playing devil's advocate. No, I no, think. totally. I think on the one hand, we're seeing where potentially there's capabilities and things for brands to explore and do. On the other, it's a question of that's great, but do, do we, we want, want it? it? Mm. Yeah. Mm. To a degree, right? It's a little bit like, um, you know, we've had automatic gears in cars for years, right? Yeah. yeah. But people will, a lot of people will still choose yeah. to. Have a and especially people who love driving, you know, the, the supercars and what have you. Yeah. A, a lot of those are manual, I think, are they? I don't know. Well, like semi-manual where they've got, so, you know, flappy right, pedals yeah, and all yeah, that sort of stuff. Okay, yeah. yeah. So maybe that maybe that's where it is. You you end up having a choice between the two, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but potentially. I mean, the 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 current iterations, you know, with SRAM and Shimano both have override features. So you can still bang through your gears. Yeah. Um, but they'll do a bit of that thinking for you, I guess, which is kind of their point. It's kind of make it easy to take some of the stress away yeah. from knowing what gear you want, you want to be in. Yeah. So, in some ways, then is it is it an ideal thing to have on on a bike for someone that's learning? Well, this is sort of my you know my next point is: Are we going to see the well? We presumably will see electronics filtering down to at some point potentially entry level bikes. Which you know when when one bike came about, you know it was always all these things come out on high-end bikes and like, oh, they're for races, oh, they're for the pros. And then, you know, the, the cheaper bikes still have those legacy components, whether it's a two-by or, a, you know, mechanical gears. But actually, I think, you know, my, I, my girlfriend went mountain biking with me for the first time the other week. And the fact that she only had to, you know, think about one shifter instead yeah. of, two, you know, because she's, she's got a town bike for riding around. And, you know, when we go on bike roads, oh, Am I doing the front ones or the back ones? In the the different levers do different things. And jumping on a you know one by mountain bike, so much simpler. Yeah, you know because it's oh big button makes it easier, little button fix it up and makes it harder. Great. So maybe actually the the true utility of electronics and potential you know AI or whatever you want to call it is actually going to be making bikes more accessible to more people, or just to make it a bit easier. Maybe something like cargo bikes when you're carrying the kids and the shopping. 
Yeah. Maybe have it on there and then life is even easier. Yeah, yeah. More time to think about looking at the road. Ooh. Yeah, enjoying the experience, isn't it? Which is ultimately what keeps us going back out there. It's having yeah. fun on the yeah. bike. It's not necessarily how, how the bike's working. So. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. I think these functions are great on a mountain bike, but don't always necessarily enhance the experience. Mm. You could argue, maybe. Yeah. I don't, you know, I, I totally appreciate what they've done and how they've done it. It's a very complex thing that they've achieved. And from what I've ridden, it, it works in certain scenarios, works really well. But at the same time, I've never felt, especially with the advent of electronic shifting. So yeah, Tom, maybe it is going down that more sort of utilitarian route and and going to be more beneficial on mm. that side of things, potentially. But I think I think Tom raised a really good point there is, does it make it more accessible? Because it is, yeah. you know, getting your head around gears, if you're not used to them, is oh, really hard to do. 100%. Um, so I think, yeah, you know, anything that we can do to make it more accessible to new people to the sport is fantastic. Mm. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, maybe we should just jump to then uh, talking about these entry-level bikes then, because we've seen over the last, I would say probably five to 10 years, the bikes that maybe a lot of brands kind of did because they had to fill a gap. Mm now getting better and better and better to the point where you don't necessarily need to go and drop 3,000, 4,000 pounds on a bike to go and have the same experience as someone on one of those bikes. You can buy a decent entry-level bike and experience proper mountain biking without things like the suspension geometry components really holding you back. Yeah. Do you think that's going to continue down that same sort of route? We're going to continue to keep evolving that section of the market, John? Yeah, no, absolutely. Like I know, I can speak for ourselves as a brand. Um, you know, obviously, we 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 produce bikes that appeal to the top of the sales pyramid, but we're also always thinking about how we can bring new people into the sport, and whether that's through kind of our marketing outreach or it's through our actual bikes that we're making. It's about getting people who are new to the sport and and just helping them have a fantastic time, mm. helping them have fun on their bike, and. Ultimately, that's what's going to keep us free in jobs. Um, <laughs> but but also, that's it's going to help the sport grow. And, and I think, especially in the UK, where we've got trail centres popping up all over the place, yeah. you know, like it's it's so accessible. And 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 I I think that maybe that's reflected on the world stage. You know, you look at world champs this year and the amount of British riders who were towards the top of mm. the you know or in the top ten, should we yeah. say, from each category, and. Is that because we've got trail centres everywhere? You know, I, maybe I don't yeah. know. You, you drive down the M4 corridor, and how many, how many trail centres do you drive by? You know, even even in Swindon on on the side of the motorway, there's a little track. Yeah. It's it's fantastic. At what point do you reckon um, brand managers? Because I, I I just remember it being a thing where we'd be trying to put a bike test together of cheaper bikes and some of the brand managers would be really reluctant to send those bikes over to us, even if they cost, you know, in excess of a thousand pounds, because they said, well, you know, we're, we're creating this geometry so people are more upright, they feel safer, but, you know, it's got a really steep head angle. There's sort of subpar components on there. At what point did that sort of shift to go, and actually we can use more aggressive geometry that we use on our higher end bikes because actually we know it's kind of beneficial. Honestly, I I don't know what 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 caused that shift. Um, I think you know there there was a shift, and 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 I think a lot of this 
is was driven originally by, and we mentioned it in another podcast, people like Chris Porter who have been so vocal. Mm. And to be honest, like, I'm not sure if I if I like saying this or not, but like the guys at Sick Bikes, do you remember those guys? Oh, yeah. yeah, they were like obnoxiously <clears throat> vocal about how good it was for biking. You know the, yeah. the geometry changes that they were going yeah. on about, but all of that stuff has filtered down to the to the mainstream. Um, and, and and it is a good thing, you know, like some of these geometry changes, they just make bikes more fun to ride. I mean, bikes like um, the Calibre. So in the UK, we have that go outdoors, outdoor yeah. chain. Um, and Mike Sanderson was responsible yeah. for a lot of those mm. bikes. And, you know, I think the most expensive bike was at, at one point a thousand pound full suspension bike. And you could genuinely go out and have a, a good yeah. time riding that. So maybe do you think we're going to see more of that then? Yeah. I think so, yeah. I think so. You know, I mean, like I know for us, we've got um, we've worked really hard on our entry to mid-level price point hardtails, um, which is sometimes a category that's forgotten. Mm. Um, you know, you still see some brands they're still putting triple chain rings on those bikes, but for us, we've we've gone down the route of making them one by, um, you know, making them all dropper post compatible, even if the price point means that you can't actually get a yeah. you know a dropper on that from the shop floor. But we're, we're, we're designing or developing these bikes so that as the rider grows and gets more into the sport, like that that frame, that platform is still worthy of kind of them putting their upgraded parts on. So, yeah, the, you know, I think a lot of brands are doing things like that just to, to allow someone to go through that journey and yeah. and then end up like us free, sat here talking on a podcast <laughs> with no money. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think we'll ever see like a, a new product line or sort of development based from that entry level point you know i'd say electronic gear suspension new geometries always filtered down do you think we'll ever see a product we'll going the other way going the other way where like it's built for and obviously like products are built for a lower price point but a completely new development in product i'm, I'm not sure is the honest answer i think it's it's a little bit like the little bit like the the aeroplane situation where you know you need those first class passengers to mm. allow to allow people to get the cheaper economy seats so you've got to develop something that's going to you know cost a lot of money to develop a, a product yeah so you've got to develop it and then sell it at those points where where the margin means that you're actually making a lot more money on it interesting thank you for your insight <laughs> i mean that's a big one isn't it well I don't, I, I don't know what okay so what what would be a product that you could design from kind of the entry price point up that would then work at the premium price point? Oh, he's looking at a bike. For yeah, those of you who are watching, listening to this, he's looking at a bike, a bike from the 80, 90s. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Do you mean, you see what I'm saying? I, I understand what you're saying, <laughs> yeah. but, but I think... I mean, we, you know, like, we can't sort of cast our eyes into the future exactly what's going to come out, but when we do so, we always think about what's going to come out that's going to benefit racers and rich people. Okay, first. I got one. Tires that don't puncture. Well, yeah, I mean, that was kind of my thought, but then the argument then would be, but racers need tires that don't puncture because that's what's going to cost so, them yeah, could go both ways right yeah if you had the tech for i don't know someone who commuted down alleyways on broken glass and needed mm. tires that never ever ever were cut yeah solid punctures solid tires like with you see every now and every like four or five years we'll get a foam tire coming to the office but they the design was adaptable to create something that would work for mm. very sort of performance-based needs mm. there you go we've created our own little thing <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah. Uh, Tom's off to write his business plan. <laughs> yeah. off John's, to, uh, John's signed GPT. up already. Go on, John. <laughs> That's yeah, I'll be a first customer. <laughs> Big investor. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I can find some money down the back of the sofa if yeah. that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Well, yeah. that, that was a bit of a showstopper, wasn't that it? That was, I, yeah. I apologise for that. Yeah. No, no, no. I think it's an interesting way to look at it. I just, I think for me personally, it's quite hard to get my head around that because, you know, okay, so I, I'm looking at a bike right now, looking at the suspension, but the effort and the energy that goes into designing certain elements of, of a suspension fork, yeah, again, I, I, I'm... This has stumped me, if I'm honest. Mm. I don't know where I was going. I thought I knew where I was going with that comment, but it turns out I don't. So. I mean, maybe this is one where actually our next... Okay, maybe not work for the, you know, the budget sort of thing, but, we, you know, the next thing we we're going to talk about potentially was electronically controlled damping, <sighs> which, you know, if we are going to introduce more electronics in suspension, maybe it isn't going to be at that price point, but maybe what it could be targeted at is the less experienced or the, the rider who maybe doesn't have all of the knowledge about the intricacies of suspension tuning. Because if you look at like the pro, you know, the pro racers out there who, you know, they've got, you know, they've got access to the massive SRAM truck or the the, the Fox engineers, you know, they can get everything perfectly tuned for them, perfectly for the track. Mm. Every single time they go out riding, they've got someone there who can twiddle a dial and change a shim stack and all that sort of stuff. But we as the general populace don't, we don't have access to that. So maybe that's maybe where electronically controlled damping could be a bit more useful. Yeah, potentially, if it's just a case of setting the sag, which is a relatively straightforward mm. job, not necessarily saying everyone does it, but um, it's one of the most fundamental things you need to do. And then if that's right, and everything else is just electronically controlled, great. Again, though, you could argue as well, though, that with the advancements, we've seen it being used in racing. You know, I don't think I don't think it's a it's a secret that we've seen the flight attendant system on cross-country race bikes. Mm. So clearly being used to great effect by some of the best cross-country racers in the world. But will it ever be cheap enough to go down to that end to benefit those I think riders? The other thing we've got to remember about electrics, it, whenever we use the word electric, we're bringing in a new dimension of potential failure and yeah. the ability to ruin ruin your bike ride. Yep. Um, you know, so I, I think like I, I'm lucky enough to run Axis dropper and rear derailleur and the amount of times I've got to the start of a trail and I've forgotten to charge I mean this probably says something more about me but <laughs> it definitely says something more about me but I've forgotten to charge and you know the gears you can sort of deal with but like in this day and age riding without a dropper it essentially ruins the ride yeah mm. you know so if we're then going to bring that into suspension and then we're then gonna you know then you've got an electric drive unit as well like it's a it's, lot of batteries it's a lot lot of batteries a lot of things to go wrong and you know here in the uk where we spend six seven months a year riding through puddles you know do, do we really want that or mm -hmm. do we want you know is it just okay to go riding with kind of the more i don't know what the term is it's not acoustic i know everyone uses that but it's mm. you know the, the non-battery stuff the non-electric stuff do i remember you riding a bike that had seven batteries on it once rob <laughs> How many batteries uh, can we fit on a bike? Hold on. It would have had three, four, five, seven. Or was it more? Well, you could have you could have your e-bike battery. You've got... I, on a, so I had it on a regular mountain bike. I yeah. had electronic gears, electronic seat post. That's four. And then... Um, shock whiz. On, well, so not flight shock, uh, flight so five and six. Fork and shock. And then you have a cadence sensor. Seven. Then you could have tire whiz. Yeah, you could have tire Yeah, you could have nine, and then you've got an e-bike ten. 
Oof, can you imagine? That's a lot. Having to charge 10 batteries. Honestly, I absolutely brick it when I know I've got to take a bike out with loads of batteries. Like I have, I set like a billion reminders on my phone. Yeah. Charge everything quick. Don't be the one that lets everyone else down the next day. Mm. Being that dick, he was just like, oh, what's Show up with going? your fancy new kit. Oh, nice. yeah. <laughs> I go, anyone uh, change gear? Anyone got a battery? We can borrow, thanks. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ah, I don't know. There's obviously, there's obviously a ton of promise in it, though, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, being able to have your suspension essentially optimize itself for mm. the terrain. But maybe it is just something for racers. Maybe it's just what we're going to see the races on. Maybe it'll be in downhill. Maybe it'll be more of a prolific thing in downhill. Or maybe, and his brands, you know, I'm saying this as a brand, maybe we need to find ways to make it easier to educate people on how to set this stuff up so we don't need to go down the route of electronics and AI yeah, and point. what have you. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know for us as a brand, we're always trying to figure out how we can make ourselves more accessible and educate our customers and potential customers about our product and you know maybe because at the end of the day suspension's not that hard to set up it's very yeah. easy to say that if you know how to do it but you know yes. i feel like it's something you could teach people to do so a hologram pops up <laughs> you scan your qr code yes. a hologram pops up out the front of your bike runs through the obviously it can't hold you up while it's set in the sag <laughs> tells you to lean against something walks you through it mm. and then sends you off and gives you a few sort of pointers yeah i think that's the thing like you know when new suspension comes out often it has more more adjustments all this sort of stuff and i think like you said like suspension isn't inherently hard to set up but it is quite easy to to fuck up yeah. like i remember riding you know like a is a relatively entry level full suspension bike which had a cane creek db inline air shock which you know great shock but it has four sets of adjustments and like if you get one of those kind of wrong like you you set your high speed rebound the wrong way or something like that like it will change how the whole bike mm. feels and not necessarily in a positive way and i think maybe if we are sort of thinking about bikes that are more accessible more entry level all that sort of stuff what we need is more simple things that yeah. you really can't mess up and that's the nice thing about simple dampers that you get on like a you know a, a fox grip damper or a mizoki rail damper very similar things or you know a basic motion control is kind of set and forget yeah yeah so we're undoing all the advancements and yeah, so we just stick to get the rid of electronics on suspension because actually <laughs> yeah. I think it's... okay. What about something that we're seeing way more of now, even in the trail bike market? High pivot designs. Is that? Do you think we're going to see more, John? I I think we'll see more, but I hate to say it. I think we'll see more driven from a fashion point of view rather than a true benefit i mean there's probably always gonna be a benefit but I, I i feel like the cycle industry um is one of those industries where kind of there's there's a real fashion kind of follow-up to to something that's doing well um, mm -hmm. the, the market can be quite reactive yeah and i think like the high pivot thing yeah we all know it works but it's also the the latest and greatest thing that you have to have on your bike isn't it really i guess like you were saying earlier though we're adding complexity yeah into something that we don't necessarily need to add complexity into, right? Because yeah. the stuff that we have now, the non-high pivot designs work pretty well. Yeah. What yeah. would be the benefit of going down that route? Should we do it or should the brands do it? I mean, it's gonna it's gonna make the back end of the bike work better. It's gonna make it pedal better. But is is that the solution or should we be looking at, uh, I'm gonna possibly jump to the next topic anyway, but looking at 
ulterior ways to to drive the rear wheel you know should we be looking at gearboxes yeah. and and how we can connect those two uh, so it doesn't affect the suspension so much um personally i would rather see that so we did we did actually talk about gearboxes in an earlier episode mm. didn't we and sort of hypothesized as to why we haven't seen them um why there's only a few like a handful out there and only a handful of brands that have sort of embraced it what's your take on it as to why we aren't seeing more of them it's a tricky one right it's it's a tricky one for me to answer in in my 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 job i suppose mm. um but you know I, I think at the end of the day uh, as much as we all love riding bikes there, there isn't a business element to it and mm. you know there's there's some big big brands that you know are very successful and at the end of the day the rear derailleur does work yeah uh, like everything it has its downsides and you know i would say a gearbox probably also has its downsides if, if we looked into it but yeah i think i it, it basically it's going to take for you know one of the two big drivetrain companies to to make that jump and then then that'll be it it will be game on um but yeah for whatever reason when we're, we're not there yet i did sort of speculate last time saying about how there's potentially more acceptance from the bike brands now that both those two big brands have got e-bike motors out there that maybe if they were to do that there's you know I, I suppose more uptake potentially do you think that would be fair to say i think so yeah yeah cool. i think i think for me a logical evolution of the the e-bike drive unit is for the gears to Live somehow it, be yeah. incorporated and okay. encapsulated in it but yeah, when well, I suppose we are we are already starting to see it. So Eurobike this year, there was there was some stuff, um, you know, on view for the public, which yeah. which is always a sign that stuff's imminent. Yeah, yeah. Um, not not from either Shimano or SRAM. It's important to add, but yeah, I I, I think it's I think it's closer than it is further away. Cool, that's um, good. To and know. nobody nobody should read anything more than that's just some some bumbling <laughs> fool saying that. <laughs> I'm not. Yeah. I guess my sort of thought on, you know, whether the big two are going to do it, you know, it seems that e-bikes is the obvious place to introduce a gearbox. Like, a, you know, unless there's some step change in the technology and how a gearbox planetary system works. You know, the, all the ones I've ridden, bar the classified, which is just a two-speed, so it's, you know, inherently a bit more efficient because there's less going on. They've all felt, like, really soupy. They've all felt syrupy. They've all not felt particularly great through the pedals, which even if there's, like you know, percentage-wise, not a huge drop in efficiency. Psychologically, I always found them pretty disheartening to ride because they just don't feel great, okay. in my opinion. And I think the whole excitement about e-bikes coming in and Gearbox, you know, maybe being integrated, I, it's Pinion who are doing that, I think. We've, mm -hmm. we've seen yeah. that sort of being announced. I guess I'd always imagined, you know, we, we speak about Shimano and Shram bringing out Gearboxes, maybe in conjunction with motors. Shram have just launched a motor system which doesn't have a gearbox and that strikes me as sort of saying that it is a little way off from the likes of SRAM because why go down one route of creating a motor system with effectively an integrated Draley driven gear system without going the whole hog of just doing a gearbox why haven't they just done a gearbox as their first you know like it seems they've gone down one pathway of having an exposed drivetrain system and a motor, they could have just gone down the gearbox system and they didn't. That is a uh, that's a really good, really good point. Um, I personally, I, mm. I don't know the answer to that. You know, I think 
and and I don't mean this kind of maliciously at all, but you know there is definitely an element of uh, chains, cassettes, and rear derailleurs to a certain extent wear out, and so that you know there is there's money to be made there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, probably the same way that I'm sure it's very easy to make a car engine that doesn't need servicing annually. You know, I, or a fact, I think so. We you all have know to get that. car engine serviced <laughs> annually. Oh, Apparently, so, this so, is so, why this, so, <laughs> this is why I've got no money. <laughs> yeah, so you know, I I think you know a lot of this stuff is perhaps possible. I, I think also, I think people perhaps think that the the cycle industry kind of on the side that I sit on is you know this big evil business that's just trying mm. to. Um, you know, taking its time to do stuff. Whereas actually, it's just for the most part, it's guys like us sat there, you know, usually pretty, I don't want to say understaffed, but you know, small teams. And there's only so much stuff is achievable in, in a short space of time. And, you know, from experience and working for Marin, you know, like you, you can be on be on the forums and whatnot going, oh, you know, the cycle industry is doing this, they're not doing that. And then, you know, as soon as you do release something, like we, we released the nail bikes, mm. you know, those, the back end, in my opinion, those back ends and those bikes work really well. But as soon as you release something that's different, oh, no, what, no, we can't have that, can't have that, you know. So it's like you, you, you can't win to a certain yeah. extent. But, yeah, I mean, I, I, again, I, I have no idea about what's actually going on with Shimano and SRAM, but I, I would be... Very surprised if there's not somebody somewhere working on a oh, gearbox. Sure. Yeah. Um, it's just it's just going to take time, and it's going to take time to get it right. Mm. And that's that's really important because nobody wants to release a product that fails mm. um, because that you know that will just be the end of it straight away. Mm. Very cool. All right, should we move on to our next one? Again, we're talking integration, sort of almost self-thinking integrated dropper post. We've seen it. Uh, BMC have got their self-dropping dropper post. Mm -hmm. um, there's been chat of droppers that drop themselves when you're all like an integration where if you drop the dropper, then the sort of the bike knows to open its suspension, that sort of thing. Yeah. So integrated dropper post or integration of droppers into the the bike. Again, I guess I'd be worried about. I mean, maybe it will happen. I I'm still kind of worried about relinquishing the control. Mm. Mm. Imagine yep. if it goes up when you don't want it to. Yeah. 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 <sighs> or shifts get that, you know, sometimes I drop a, my saddle for a comfort inch, as I like to call it, on mm. a techie climb, just to sort comfort of, yeah, <laughs> you know. And uh, imagine if you did that and then suddenly your gears go into top gear and you're like, Whoa. or you just, yeah, yeah, imagine, yeah. 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 I mean, that's the other thing as well. Like, bikes are so good now. For the most part, I just kind of leave my suspension open. Yeah, suspension's yeah. open. For me, maybe this is more about me again but like there's a romance between like the rider and the machine working mm, together 100%. and when when you start to automate stuff then there's kind of that's not there anymore mm. and will that take away an element of the of the fun from the ride for, i think for me it would personally mm -hmm. again it's it, i suppose it's down to you know um application and intent you know what's it going to be used for are we going to see it on everyday bikes you know, I, I suppose like the the BMC thing makes sense on the race bikes. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, and I think that's 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 quite cool. If I had if I had it on like a regular trail bike and something was trying to dump a load of gears, stiffen my suspension up, and you know lift my seat post up or down whenever it wanted to, mm. I'm not totally sure I'd be cool with that. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think again, 
for kind of some of this automated stuff, we've got to look to what's happening in the automotive industry, you know, like Formula One. Yeah, there's a lot of electronics there, but there's still a lot of uh, like driver or support team mm. mm-hmm. override. And there's a lot going on there, isn't there, mm-hmm. to kind of to make the two work well together. So, yeah, I, I don't. I don't know that automation is is the way forward, personally. Yeah, maybe this is one of those things that is going to be, as say, most applicable to a very select group of racers. You know, drop if you drop your seat post on an XC bike on an XC race, you're probably going to want your suspension open. Yeah, you know, yeah, they're not looking for a comfort inch. <laughs> can we uh, can we like um, take that phrase comfort inch, and you might start seeing that on Marines in the yeah, future. No, it's all yours. Yeah, 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 I'm not yeah, sure yeah. what we use it for. But, right. Yeah. What did we use this? We used to have the safety inch as well on safety the suspension. You try and reserve about an inch. Right. Make sure it ramped up enough <laughs> in case you had a really bad moment. And then yeah, you're like, yeah, yeah. sorry, I got my safety inch. I can handle that landing. There was always um, when Seb did his uh, suspension set of things, you know, when you sort of, you should, you know, you pull up and do a bunny up and bang it down as hard as you can, like absolutely as hard as you can. You don't want to go all the way because all the way is when you then blow your hands off. You need just that little bit of extra just to blow your hands you. off. <laughs> my God. Yeah. I don't want to blow my hand. Back. <laughs> no, I neither do I. That's why you need your, your safety, <laughs> your safety inch. inch. Should we bring it back to something a bit more basic? Keeping air in tires. Mm. Are we going to see, are we going to finally see like puncture proof tires? Is that going to be a thing? Because, you know, Mount St. Anne in 2023. Yeah. And, and Snowshoe, in fact, watching the races go down. Some of those guys, you know, their whole season, the points dependent upon them keeping air in their tires and, it didn't work out for everyone. It feels like a very fundamental sort of, I don't know, relatively basic thing that we still haven't quite got right. Yeah. Are we are we going to see developments there without tyres weighing an absolute a ton? I guess this is the thing, like the, the trade-off between puncture-free tyres, the other side of that is is in general terms grip, right? Because mm. you, you know, you, you need a tyre that is supple and that you can alter and you can change the feel of it which inherently introduces some sort of weakness because if it wasn't supple, it would be really strong, but you'd also have no grip and no feel. So, you know, talk about months and then lots of people getting punctures. You'll see a lot of people crashing because they ran out of grip. So yeah, yeah, how do we, what material science, it's got to be a material scientist who comes up with this thing. And, you know, the long lauded solid tire that we used to have back in the day, which very little compliance, probably not very much grip, but never punctured because there's no air in it. Is that something we can return to with someone who's very smart at producing maybe a moose that is variable in its density or its? It sounds like you've done all the thinking. <laughs> but if we like, so if we, it's like obviously someone racing at Montsanan is race, they're pushing the absolute limits. Uh, so maybe that's not where we should be looking. Like if we look at kind of you know average Joe who goes out on a Saturday or Sunday, they've got tubeless, they've they've got a decent tubeless rim, they've got decent tape, they've got decent valves, they've got decent, you know, some sealants mm-hmm. are better than others, and then they've got a decent tyre. Is this still really a problem? Or is, for the most part, mm. it's absolutely fine? I I personally think we're pretty damn close now. Oh, yeah, yeah, don't get me wrong. I think I think it, it isn't a million miles away. It still feels like... Or maybe it's just some bike brands insistent on putting lightweight tires on to try and get a, maybe a lighter overall weight rather yeah. than just going actually we've got a good idea of how this bike's going to be ridden we should mm. probably put the sturdiest yeah. tires yeah. on maybe it is trying to move away from headline weights because do they really matter 
I, I mean, this is this is a whole other podcast in itself. <laughs> but yeah, no, not I. I put. I'm, I really don't think they do. No. Yeah. Um, and and I know for us as a company, like we we're always getting asked about the weights, and you know we'll just say, look, it's check out the way it rides, take it for a spin. You know, like don't don't worry. Like a lot of the time, let's say you're seven, you weigh 70, 80 kilos. And you, you know, you can buy a bike that's one kilo lighter than than a Marin. Well, that's you know, what's what's one kilo when you weigh eighty kilos? It's mm. nothing. Mm. You know, don't don't worry about it. You're better off having those better tires mm. that you're probably going to end up going and buying anyway if it comes with some lighter weight. Yeah, I think the thing that gets me about you know puncture proof tires or tire and wheel systems is that we're still beholden to a number of potential failures even if you you know if you said okay we can build a tire that's not going to get a hole in the sidewall that's great we're still sort of sloshing a bit of sealant in there that dries out and you know ends up in lumps in there and we're still sealing our rims with a bit of sellotape and let's be fair <laughs> you, don't, you, you don't have the best relationship I'm with tubes big tires fan, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of failures there <laughs> Maybe that's it. But the thing is, right? And uh, you know, we joke about it quite a lot because I am. You get terrible. quite angry about I it. I get quite angry about it. I am terrible at like mechanics. I'd never be a mechanic, by the way. Never ever want to be a mechanic. <laughs> but like, I'm not entirely stupid. Like, I'm kind of stupid. <laughs> no, I'm not, not very good at it. But like, even I like find the whole tubeless process a bit frustrating. Like. I don't. I did. It was two weeks ago. I had to wrap a rim in some sellotape to stop some air coming out of it. Like it's twenty twenty three. Can we not move on past this? I mean, I personally don't have those issues, right. and I'm be, I'm being completely honest. Um, <laughs> but I don't want to be wrapping my rim in sellotape. No, you don't. You, well, that's. Do you know what? That's why you should buy my rim because our bikes come tubeless ready they've already got the tape in there they, they, there shouldn't be sellotape it's like, <laughs> it's, like i know we've got mavic's ust system i mean that should just be a given right a sealed rim why can't we just have a sealed rim the old crank brothers were like that as well i, I think yeah, yeah but, maybe, but yeah. then but then i think you could have a rim like that mm. but then what would you say if the cost of that bike then went up by 200 pounds on the shop floor well, maybe if every rim was sealed then like the <laughs> If every bike was more expensive. <laughs> well, no, like, <laughs> economies of scale. If every rim was sealed so you didn't need sellotape on it, then uh, they'd bring the price down. <laughs> economics. Economics, come on. Nailed it. I don't know. That's. I think that's... I think. I do think, though, like, you know, if we're talking about tyres that are never going to punch, we have to think about the wheel system as a whole because there are inherent issues with, with it. Yeah, I mean... I suppose, like, I was the one who brought this up, but at the same time, I raced the Stone King Rally last year mm. on a set of double-down Maxxis tyres and had no issues mm. at all. Didn't run any inserts, just put a bit of sealant in. But they probably weigh 1,300 grams each. Yeah, that, I guess that's back to the whole, doesn't really matter. That The weight thing, I, I wanted to finish the race. Yeah. And I knew that if I had punches left, right and centre, that's, you know, it's going to... Not ruin the experience, but it's certainly going to impact it. Yeah. Um, so it's a sacrifice I'm more than willing to take is a bit of extra weight. Yeah. To have a more reliable bike. In a gravity racing intention. If I, if I you mean, spent a lot of your days pootling around Swindley, do you want to pootle around Swindley with a 1300 gram tyre front and back? But can you argue, um, didn't Pidcock get a load of punches yeah. just recently? So he's using lightweight and he's, 
of anyone. He's probably so strong if mm. you added an extra 100 grams to each tire yeah, to make sure. it so that he didn't punch her. But also, like, you're, you're talking about an extreme now, aren't you? Like, you know, riding the Stone King. Oh, yeah. You know, like, well, the clue's in the name, I suppose. You know, so you, you need a, King. a better tire. <laughs> you need Stone. a better tire. Whereas if you're riding at kind of a, you know, a, a trail centre that's that's not at that extreme, you don't need that tire. So you don't need that for, you know, if you're riding at Swinley or, or oh, somewhere yeah, exactly. similar, you don't need that heavier tire. But you can still you can still get the benefits of a decent tubeless system. Mm. Yeah, I guess that's my my point was just that things have obviously progressed and we're at a decent point, but maybe there's still a bit of wiggle room. Obviously, you yeah. think so. <laughs> yeah, I think that material scientist needs to come up with a, a viscous. Or maybe you need to buy shares in a sellotape company. Maybe yeah. that's it. Yeah, yeah, 3M. And with the money that you get from that, yeah. You create all these completely sealed rim beds yeah, that you can then sell back into the industry. Oh, yeah, there you go. At a lower rate, so they don't have to inflate the cost of there each of their bikes. But in the short term, buy rims with lots of holes <laughs> in and lots of sellotape. I think, yeah, another business plan for you to create. Well done. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we've been through our list there. We've we've sorted out the future. We all know what's going to happen next. <laughs> Three grumpy old men, or, or two, two old grumpy men, old yeah. men, and one middle aged one. Minute, one. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, I think we'll uh, we'll uh, pull the close to this episode of the MBK podcast. Thanks ever so much for listening, uh, and check out your podcast provider for more episodes. Thanks, John. Thank you.